There we go. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm good. It's Mardi Gras. There's parades passing by. If you hear the sound of a marching band, uh, <laughs> it's because there's a lot of shit coming by the office right now in the big Mardi Gras parade. You know what? I have uh, I have never been to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. I should uh, get to New Orleans for Mardi Gras. I should, uh, you know, maybe I should do this that. This needs to happen. This needs to happen. Yeah. Get, uh, you know, uh, you know, get some, uh, get some beignets, uh, get the, uh, you know, watch, uh, watch Mardi Gras from the current affairs office. Sounds like a good, good place time. to see it. Yeah. Uh, did get to see the office back in, uh, December, but yeah, no, uh, no Mardi Gras going on outside. So got to, uh, no, got, no, got to fix that absolute chaos. We're in the epicenter of Mardi Gras right here. We're like right, right in the heart of it. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I might actually do that uh, next year. But anyway, um, I did. Uh, so, yeah, obviously wanted to talk to you about your article, but uh, did see a couple. Well, there are maybe a couple other things that are worth mentioning uh, first. So uh, one is that I uh, think within the last week uh, you have a new book out. I do have a new book out. Yeah, there we go. This body of the right brief applies to 25 conservative arguments. Yes, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, and uh, and yeah, I've I've, uh, I've I've read over some of that. That is good stuff. People should get uh, should get responding uh, responding to the right. Uh, there's a, it's a nice you know read it through or use it you know, read it through or use it as a handy reference. It is a handy reference. Uh, well, we, we, you know what it pairs well with? It pairs well with the book "Give Them an Argument." Yes, <laughs> like a very nice, like you lay out the case for giving them an argument, and then I give them a pile of arguments. So, yeah, tie them together. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, if if you uh, if you have uh, you know, you find yourself in a situation where you'd like to know very quickly, you know, what's, uh, what's wrong with, uh, you know, the claim that, you know, minimum wage is going to, is going to lead to, uh, unemployment or that the, uh, uh, you know, we can't have social democracy in the United States cause it's not homogenous enough. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, then this is, uh, uh, yeah, this is a good thing to, uh, this is a good thing to have. People should work Nathan's book. Um, the, and we'll definitely have you on the, made show sometime soon to talk about the book. But uh, but the other thing is um, just of particular interest to me, given my, you know, weird preoccupations. Uh, I saw, like, within the last hour on, on Twitter, I noticed uh, that you posted about... Uh, <laughs> I know what this is. I know what this is. Uh, <laughs> about Sam Harris. <laughs> Mutual uh, friend Sam Harris. Yes, yes. Friend of... Uh, Friend of the show, as we always say, <laughs> uh, Sam Harris, um, acknowledging the existence of your uh, critique of him and uh, in current Finally, affair. after four years. Yeah. Four years uh, of silence, and then all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's, it's called uh, uh, Being Mr. Reasonable. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, 
Eli Massey is the, is the yeah co-wrote co- co- it with Eli Massey yeah yeah uh, and uh, but it's like a sort of classic Nathan Robinson kind of you know ten thousand word takedown of uh, uh, someone and uh, so it's yeah it's called being Mister Reasonable and and it's funny because I saw you know I saw the quote you posted from uh, from Harris I assume this is on his podcast or somebody else's podcast. Whose podcast is it? It's it's a, from a conversation. Yeah, it looks like it's yeah, it's Sam Harris's podcast. There's an interview with the uh, uh, leading effective altruist William McCaskill. Oh, that's a little bit too good. Okay, um, yeah, okay, uh, <laughs> that that sounds right. I I have um, yeah, I actually wrote something about effective altruism for Jacobin uh, right at the end of the year last year and I, I looked for that article. I remember I kind of looked at what McCaskill says in his book about socialism, um, you know, cause, cause this is a obvious, you know, this is an obvious question. Like if you're going to say, um, you know, if you're going to promote like individual charity, you know, as the, uh, as this, as the sort of best thing you can do to, uh, to improve society, you know, what do you think about socialism? And as with Peter Singer, who, also has now effective altruism book in both cases, just the superficiality that they, uh, you know, like with which they, they talk about socialism is, is just amazing, right? It's like a couple of sentences, you know, of like being super dismissive about it, which is to say that that sounds like about the right speed for somebody that uh, Sam Harris will be having this conversation with. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, while talking to William McCaskill, uh, Sam says, and I quote, the editor over there at Kurt Affairs who's talking about strikes me as someone who is truly mentally unwell, given some of the insane things he's written about me and the length at which he's written them. <laughs> well, I'm pleased. I'm gratified by that. Because, uh, you know, there's in the Sam Harris subreddit, there are all these people, there's a post a, a while, a couple of years ago, saying, did Sam Harris ever reply to the current affairs criticism of him because it seemed pretty substantive and it seemed to steal man Sam and it didn't seem to, you know, it quoted his own words. You know, we did all of the things with that article intentionally to avoid Sam Harris being able to dismiss it, right? Because he has a lot of classic ways in which he dismisses criticism, where he says, you took me out of context or this isn't what I really believe. This is an exaggeration. You're straw manning me, et cetera, et cetera. We were very, very careful. Um, we went over that article over and over and over to make sure that it was substantive, to make sure that it addressed, that it criticized only positions that he held, that it anticipated this counterargument. And, you know, a lot of his fans were saying, well, it seemed like the sort of thing that he ought to reply to. And he never did. This is his first comment on it after four years. And what is it? It's not a reply to any of the arguments, but it's a... I, I believe as a philosopher, you can f- confirm that this is what's called the ad hominem, <laughs> uh, <laughs> where instead of addressing the arguments, he addresses my mental state, where he says, well, an article this long uh, must be by someone so mentally unwell. But what's interesting is that the, the length, we had to write at that length to anticipate all his counterargument. It, it ended up being that length because Sam Harris is such a slippery character that we wanted to cite everything and go like, but you could say this and obviously this would still be wrong, right? It was exhaustive. And then he says, well, something that long must be by someone who's mentally ill. That's that's the intellectual level we're on now with Sam Harris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, 
anybody who's encountered it's like uh what's it what's his name pz myers talks about the uh the hair the uh the harris shuffle uh where he he sort of says something um he says something provocative and then you're uh then you um that you you respond to it and uh and, and he says well you're just you're just caricaturing me now right you know that's uh all i all i said was right you know um and um and so, yeah, I mean, like, given given that this is clearly <laughs> clearly how he operates, um, I think, yeah, I think like going to great lengths to uh, to to quote his words, to uh, to to sort of say, like, you know, here's you know, here's exactly what he's saying. Let's look at the evidence, uh, you know. So you can't be accused of just saying like he's a. Um, you know, like for example, like like with the stuff about Islam in that article, um, you know, like he's he's very uh, he's on very familiar ground. If it's just like somebody's calling him a racist, and he's like, "Oh, you're you're being hysterical," but if if you know you say like, "Look, here's this exact thing he said about you know Muslims uh, not uh, you know Muslims not condemning the the nine eleven attacks." And, you know, and, and here's what, like, the Council on American Islamic Relations actually said, et cetera, you know, that it's, like, much harder for him to uh, respond that way. But, yeah, I I guess this is the response that, that you're just raising. You're waiting for uh, this. And, but what's interesting it, to me is that we now know definitively that he's seen it, that he's read it, yeah. okay? So, like, a lot of the times when you write something and you pr- pretty well nail people, in the, in that you 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 know you disprove their arguments pretty conclusively, they'll just they'll just slither away and pretend they never heard of you. Um, you know Ben Shapiro's thing right, about what did he say about me? You know, oh, I've never heard of that magazine, uh, or so, so you know someone in a magazine I've never heard of. Um, but Sam Harris sort of admits he's looked at it, and all he all he will say is uh, insane. He won't even say why. Why think? Why, why do you think it's insane? What did I get wrong? What's insane about anything I wrote? What did I mischaracterize? You know. So I think we can really pretty definitively put Sam Harris in the uh, the the hack uh, bucket now because he's just not intellectually serious, right? There's no counter argument. There's no real response. We know he's seen the piece. So you know, if he has a response, what is it? He doesn't have one. Okay, well then we can dismiss him. He's not serious. Yeah, I mean Ben Shapiro is is the uh, is the master of just sort of pretending he hasn't seen it. Um, like to the point where, uh, you know, I, I wrote an article about it for the daily beast last year and, um, I was, uh, would be really careful about how I put it, put this, but somebody else who he is willing to talk to, uh, told me that like within five minutes of this person posting, uh, the, uh, you know, my article, he, he had like reached out to them. And, uh, you know, he, you know, he pretty unambiguously saw it, right. You know, but he's, he's never going to, I don't want to get this, uh, uh, anyway, they have a, he pretty unambiguously saw it, but he's never going to say it. Right. Cause, cause he has a, he doesn't want to put himself in the, in the position of having people ask him, uh, how he would, you know, how he would respond to things that I've said about him or why he's, he's not willing to talk to me or, you know, et cetera. Uh, I, but like Harris, this is just um, like okay. I mean, my my issues with this guy, I think, have always run you know, broadly been two things. One is that 
I think he had, you know, that overlap. One is that I think he has these like, just kind of um, awful positions on, you know, torture and Islam and uh, uh, profiling at airports and uh, Israel, Palestine and Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, hypothetically, uh, using uh, using nuclear weapons uh, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, th- I think all of that, you know, uh, IQ. While we're at it, uh, they have a so there's this like impressively long list of things where I I, I just kind of hate his uh, his political opinions. But then the overlapping one is that I think you know as a you know I I, I just is that he just makes such bad arguments and in, and, in, and in particular, like it always bothers me sort of as a philosophy nerd, you know, just cause um, you know, he, he will, you know, I mean, honestly, there's a whole range of, there are like certain kinds of topics where he's probably like, there are a lot of people that the only person they've read uh, write extensively about these topics is Sam Harris. Cause he has these like bestsellers, about you know free will and moral realism and things like that and and he, he he makes just awful arguments in these books with crazy logical leaps and he seems yeah. to take it as a sort of weird point of pride that he hasn't read any of the academic literature from yeah. which he might actually learn what the people he disagrees with think well right well I, and and I think as a philosopher you have a right to resent Sam Harris because Sam Harris's whole book the moral landscape how science can determine human values was a real insult to philosophers in a certain way because he he had this whole thing about how science can determine human values right yes. but and and his whole the novelty of the book supposedly was that he had found a way for science to to prove what was right and wrong and then when you read it closely as um or not you don't even have to read it that closely but uh, there's this review of the book by the philosopher uh Whitley Kaufman who pointed out that everything that Harris says is science is actually just moral philosophy right yeah. he's just a moral realist right and and Kaufman yeah. says well look you, you all of the arguments that you're making here they're not science their philosophy and so sam harris is basically using like old philosophical arguments but rebranding them as science and saying that they're his original contribution so essentially every every philosopher should be aggrieved by what sam harris <laughs> does in the yeah. landscape I, I mean it's also just like it's it, like again just the core argument in that in that book is is terrible right because it's like essentially what he's saying is you know i mean he doesn't put it this way but uh if you just help yourself to the assumption that utilitarianism is true then <laughs> uh, then you can then like you know empirical you know results that science might tell you something about you know can can yeah. can given that tell you what's right and wrong yeah but of course that conditional statement is totally uncontroversial nobody's ever disagreed with that right all of the action yes. is at yeah. um all of the action is that let's just assume utilitarianism yes <laughs> like, i know well, this is what Kaufman uh, says. He, he, he just points out, he's like, yeah, <laughs> all you're doing is you're saying, if I assume my conclusion, then I'm correct. Uh, yeah, right. Like, it's like, okay, you are, but also 
by the way, even if we do assume your conclusion, it still has nothing to do with science. I mean, that, that yeah, where's the science? There is no science in yeah. in in the work being done. There's purely moral philosophy, but he's not admitting it's philosophy yeah, because if he did. Then, if the moment he admitted he was doing philosophy, then Ugh. he would under then he would invite the kind of scrutiny that, I, as I pointed out in the my, my article, he, uh, you know, the, the subtitle was how moral philosophy if how how moral philosophy could determine human values. Like he wouldn't have gotten a book deal. Like the <laughs> only reason he got a book deal was because he passed off bad philosophy as science. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, like it's because there's no yeah. Even if he was completely right about uh, you know his whole view of morality and all of that, you know, which um, of course he doesn't consider like you know there, there's a lot of um, you know basically none of the things that people have ever said about why they don't agree with utilitarianism make an appearance in the world landscape. But they have. <laughs> but uh, but like even if he was right about utilitarianism and everything, it's like, yeah, it would still have nothing to do with science. It would just be like, he's still just arguing from his moral intuitions, which is fine. But then like, if you're going to be engaged in that enterprise that like, you'd sort of have to admit that you're down in the, in the dirt with everybody else, uh, you know, who's, uh, who's doing that. And, you know, you'd have to consider their arguments, et cetera. Whereas like, yeah, his whole rhetorical posture is, well, I'm just, um, is is that like well that's all I I don't care about any of that stuff right you know I'm just I'm just uh, I'm just here to as a messenger of you know of of capital S uh, science which you know which which I I mean I think is like absurd and intellectually lazy uh, in itself and I also think I also think that there is a tie in I mean you know Michael Brooks's book Against the Web has a chat, long chapter on Harris that you know gets into this I think there is a tie in with his general worldview is like a, as like a certain kind of technocratic uh, liberal, you know, that they, uh, that, you know, he's just going to, you know, use his expertise and, you know, neuroscience to, uh, to tell you, uh, uh, you know, to tell you why you should, uh, you know, why you should support, uh, you know, torture and suspected terrorists and, you know, go into war in the Middle East. Yeah. Well, this is the other thing about Sam Harris is that he is, profoundly elitist so um you know he had this he had this quote a while back where he's talking about why he thought it was legitimate i think for twitter to suppress the hunter biden story for the sake of the greater good and people were pointing out that he was like like pretty like more open about this than almost anyone else going no 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 that you know you you have to the greater good um you know we, we have to manipulate the voters and what's interesting is in the moral landscape there's some deeply dystopian passages uh that we brought out of it that uh that, I, that hadn't been widely commented on where he he talks about the need to like fix people's brains if they get the wrong moral conclusions right and he talks about how like in the future we'll be able to scan people's brains to know if they're lying awesome. and there will be what he calls in capitals the zone of obligatory candor which I just think, like, even Orwell hadn't come up with the zone of obligatory candor, which I... <laughs> and, um, you know, Sam Harris, because partially because he doesn't believe in, in free will, mm. like, because he thinks we're, we're all, all puppets, he has... Yeah, exactly. He doesn't really... Ha he, he stays away from politics for the most part, but when he does talk about politics, he, he's a very interesting kind of extreme caricature of the 
the person that Chomsky's always writing about, the like Walter Lippmann type liberal yeah, yeah. who believes that the people don't know their own good and so they need to be propagandized and manipulated into doing what's right through whatever dystopian methods are are necessary. So Harris has this and of course Harris is a very, very extreme anti-Trump person. Uh. And I assume he sees Trump as proof that the people are morons who can't be right. trusted and they're and they're betters who understand the objectively correct moral conclusions that science has given us, uh, yes. you know, that he believes in a technocracy, right? He believes that those who are, who understand science understand the good. And so they are therefore, and so he, he ends up in the same place that someone like Jason Brennan, who I think you've written totally. about or tangled with before, yep. who believes in an epistocracy of the, <laughs> of the, of the, of the intellectual superiors, they kind of end up in the same place. Like the liberals and the libertarians both end up at extreme elitist authoritarianism. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Brennan uh, says that we should, um, he actually gives us an example of the sort of thing that uh, that the epistocracy would would prevent um, that uh, you know like you should have like panels of economists who can like overrule like sort of like some sort of you know um, American secular capitalist version of the Islamic Guardianship Council in Iran you know like that, that like they can tell you that they're uh, the panel of economists can tell you that you're not allowed to have rent control laws like that's actually one of his examples. Uh, in his uh, in his book, uh, which I think tells you everything about where he's coming from, uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the Trump thing is um, is a perfect example of what's wrong with Harris's uh, worldview, and this is and not just Harris. I mean, like this is I think a, a pretty deep streak within American liberalism, um, like back in twenty seventeen like the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, I felt like I must have read at least like 10 or 20 uh, mainstream press, like, you know, things in like the Atlantic and stuff like that, that would, um, you know, like, like do the sort of uh, takes on Trump's victory where they would like quote, like Plato and Aristotle and the dangers of mob rule, you know, that that was their, uh, that was their takeaway. That there was that like Trump Trump being president showed that we had too much democracy, mm. which is funny for a few reasons, uh, including the fact that Trump like lost the popular vote in 2016. Mm. You know, which which yeah. uh, you know might suggest to the casual observer that Trump being president showed that we had too little democracy. Possibly. Well, yes, as we on the left were always pointing out, like, you know, if there was a true democracy, Republicans would never win an election, right? If we had people who had accurate information given to them, like, instead of propaganda, um, if we had, you know, universal suffrage, um, for example, uh, and people in Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C. were allowed to, you know, have representation, <laughs> Where'd you go? Shit. Ben, I... All right. Uh, my power just went out, so I'm going to have to wrap oh, the, I'm going to have to wrap this up for my phone, but... Um, <laughs> uh, okay. but I, I okay. was going to 
day. Let's see if I can move into the light a little bit. Uh, yeah. That, uh, the uh, oh, there we go. It's back. Okay, that's nice. Uh, so, um, at least there's a very brief outage this time. Um, <laughs> you got a funny uh, comment there, Philosophy123, saying the Koch brothers are at it again. This is clearly <laughs> Uh, I also like their comment, Sam Harris would flip burgers in an epistocracy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, like, that same point, right, like about Trump and and democracy, that the the sort of, uh, like, deep absurdity of saying that a billionaire with a self-financed campaign who um, who was uh, who became president after losing the popular vote uh, and largely because we have a electoral system that that like restricts people's choices to only two parties I mean there, there, there are plenty of people you know if, if a um, you know, we had uh, rank choice voted, et cetera. And the outcome probably would have been different. The absurdity of thinking that's too much democracy and, and the, uh, and, and, uh, you know, benevolent, you know, benevolent technocrats, you know, have to save us from ourselves. It's like, look, that's bad enough when it's being deployed as an anti-Trump. It's to bring you on to talk about it's just amazing in the context of saying that Joe Biden has to be the Democratic nominee, that we can't have a contested primary because the uh, the Democratic Party elders have, uh, in their you know in their deep wisdom, have decided that the uh, that uh, that that Joe Biden has to be it, and uh, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you you cite a bunch of statistics in the article that are astonishing. I mean, mean, what's the percentage of Democratic voters who want Joe Biden to run in 2024? That's like 30. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They've done a bunch of polls on this now. I mean, overwhelmingly, Democrats say they don't want him to run. Yeah, so I read this article um, pointing out something that I have found quite strange, right, which is there are all these articles going like Democrats are unifying behind Biden. And then there are other articles going, Democrats don't want Biden to run. And they're like, well, right. th- those two things contradict each other. Either they're unifying behind him or they don't want him to run. What's, wh- what is the case? And it makes sense when you understand that one set of those articles is about Democratic Party elites um, because they've all decided, all of them, even Bernie, right? Because uh, Bernie says, if Biden runs, I will support him. That's what he said. Uh, right. He hasn't left it open. He literally said, I will support. Now, you know, politicians go back on these kinds sure. of promises all the time. But, um, you know, there's there's nobody saying openly at the high levels of the Democratic Party, Biden needs a primary challenger. However, if you talk to Democratic Party voters and you're like, do you want Joe Biden as your nominee? They go, no, Joe Biden is old and unpopular and uninspiring and we would like someone else. They say this overwhelmingly. Um, now, that's Democratic voters. If you look at the voters as a whole, if you take the entire electorate, um, like 80% of them don't want Joe Biden to be their, to be their president uh, in the next term. They don't, they don't want Joe Biden to be the president. Now, let's leave aside all of the questions of, is Joe Biden unfairly 
underrated, right? Because a lot of Democrats say, well, Joe Biden has actually gotten a lot done and the voters are just very unappreciative. And look at this thing and this yeah, thing. Yeah. It's like, okay, but my point is we live in a democracy. And so <laughs> the measure of whether Joe Biden is a success and should be reelected should be, do people agree with you? Right. In a democracy, you have to get people to agree with you. You can't just say, like, we have the party has decided that Joe Biden has done well enough to where he will be president again. Like, you know, that isn't up for you to say. It's for the voters to say. And so if they shut down all possibility for there to be a primary challenger, so there's essentially one name on the ballot, maybe some, you know, there's always a few people where you're like, who the hell is that? I've never heard of that person. Um, Maybe there'll be a couple of those on the ballot. But if, they, if there's one name on the ballot, that's like a, a banana republic. It's like here's yeah. your election. You just have to decide: do you do you uh, yes or no on the candidate? And you can't say no. So the answer is: would you like this guy or this guy? And you're like, is there a different guy? No, this is the guy. You have to say this guy. And then you know, once the prime, so the primary is just Biden. You can choose Biden or Biden. And then in the general election, you can choose. Biden or whoever the like climate denying Republican that is going to take us into the abyss is. So then you get Biden or the abyss. So you get two choices, two phases of choices, Biden or Biden, and then Biden or the abyss. <laughs> yeah. um, and of course the hope of, uh, of, of democratic uh, democratic party elites is that uh, that will, you know, the, the fear of the abyss will make people choose Biden again, which, which, you know, it may, but also, um, you know, I mean, look, um, we have pretty recent evidence. Sometimes they pick the abyss. Sometimes they go, fuck, fuck that. I'm not, you're not coercing me. I'll take the abyss. <laughs> exactly. Deal with it. And then you're like, no, 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 you can't take the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, like, oh, I thought I had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember in 2016 uh, when uh, toward the end of the Bernie Hillary primary, when people were like liberals were mad that uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, was like since he was, you know, however far behind he was, whatever, that he would drop out already and endorse Hillary. I remember uh, Corey Robin pointed out that this is a more extreme version of democratic centralism than the classic communist kind, because 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 they there the idea is that you have to draw, you know at the party Congress, you have to unify and accept the decision, you know, but they, but here they're saying, well, even before the party Congress, you know, that's even earlier, right? Before it was like, after, you know, as soon as Hillary, it's clear that she won. Now you have to uh, endorse it. Now it's no, no, no. We're not even going to have a, we're not even going to have an election. Like (laughs) we, there shouldn't even be, there shouldn't even be an opportunity for democratic voters to weigh in on which way they want the party to go, whether they want to keep the current president or whether they would like an, an alternative. Uh, w- there shouldn't even be an election. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is astonishing because, again, like, okay, yes, this is uh, pretty hideously objectionable uh, in, uh, you know, just for obvious democratic reasons. I mean, it's, it's bad enough that, you know, the United States is, you know, significantly less democratic than... Um, you know, like many European countries or Canada, right? You know, places where you you do actually have, um, to a certain varying extent, you know, you do have more than two parties that are allowed to meaningfully participate. You know that the um, 
you know, every once in a while, you know, Canada, there'll be an election where the NDP is actually, you know, has a possibility of winning. Um, so, you know, it's already bad enough. We've got this electoral system that like almost pretty effectively disincentivizes, um, you know, let, you know, uh, voted for any except for two options. But then, the you know, in theory, you should have at least one, you know, that like these options, at least even if, you know, even if both of them are only, you know, strongly identified with by a minority of the population that like, uh, that's going to do things like vote in their primaries, like a, like a pretty small minority, actually, when you get down to it, like it's like at least that minority of the population is supposed to have its say on what the options are. Um, and now, like, we can't even get that, you know, I have like all this like weird loyalty oath taken that it has to be Biden, that nobody's going to run against Biden. And then, um, but then like, also it's just like, okay, so this is all like objectionable for like principal democratic reasons anyway, but like, also it's just amazing. That's like, again, bad enough to do the epistocracy thing as the anti-Trump thing. But I mean, it's like, they're doing all of this for Joe Biden. Like that, they, uh, that, like the big thing that they're preventing is that it's like, God forbid, we should have like I don't even know J.B. Pritzker, or, you know, or or even, or even some like slightly less unpopular neoliberal like you know, like uh, like Gretchen Whitmer, or like you know, it's like that's that's what all of this is to prevent. Well, I know, and uh, you know, and they're manipulating the primary schedule by putting South Carolina ahead of uh, New Hampshire, you know, to prop Joe Biden up and doing this whole thing about how successful Joe Biden is and how, you know, everyone, everyone likes him now, which is just contradicted by the actual evidence. He's an unpopular president. He's got a low approval rating and the voters want to get rid of him. So we need an election, right? You've got to, in fact, so I wrote in 2020, a piece that, you know, people after the election go, yeah, you were wrong, say that Joe Biden wouldn't do uh, well against Donald Trump. Well, I, honestly, like he he would have lost if it weren't for the fact that Donald Trump botched the COVID pandemic, which oh. I did not anticipate, um, to the point no. where he started killing his own voters. And, you know, <laughs> there, there, is, there is no doubt in my mind. Because it was because it wouldn't take much shift in Wisconsin yeah. and Arizona, and Biden would have lost. And so the very thing that totally. were it not for COVID, Democrats caught a you know don't want to use the word lucky break, but it was a lucky break yeah. electorally. Yeah, electorally, it was a lucky break. Trump and, absolutely would have been reelected uh, if you took COVID out, uh, and probably, in fact, he would have been you know reelected by a fair amount if you took both both COVID and George Floyd out. You know, because because that's uh, so, you know. Uh, I think the combination of the pandemic and a general sense that half of the country was on fire, you know, right. exaggeration, but still, so, you know. That... Uh, right. So the fact that Joe Biden was a very weak candidate ceased to matter as much because the country was in a crisis and people wanted to change. Okay. Well, I think the same warnings, if you go back and look at those warnings about what makes Joe Biden a, a weak candidate generally, I think they apply doubly now. And I think Democrats are taking a huge risk by gambling everything on Joe Biden, right? Because he's a, he's a weak candidate. He's really unpopular, and everyone thinks he's too old and shouldn't be president. Like, everyone thinks this. So yeah. it's like a massive risk. Why wouldn't you try and get a better candidate? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, you know, and and I'll, I don't even think he's too old. I don't, you know, it's like, I well, actually, maybe he's too old in the specific sense if he's like, 
cognitively aging badly. So like, you know, like maybe there is a sense in which he's too old. Uh, I don't, I don't really care about his age uh, that much though. I mean, I, I have a, uh, I have a lot of other objections, but yeah, whatever. I mean, like, like this is what the voters think and uh, perhaps they should have a say. Uh, I'd also point out that something that comes up in your article and I want to, I know there, there are a couple of people in the queue, so I want to see if we can take at least one, maybe both of them before I let you go. But the, uh, uh, but, you know, something that comes up in the articles that part of the argument for like, oh, this is why, you know, Democrats are consolidating behind Biden is because of the better than expected midterm performance. And like, this is something that's really bothered me since the midterm uh, that um, like what's being treated as this great historic accomplishment uh, is that Democrats didn't lose as much ground as they expected to. We normally do. Yeah. It's like, oh. They didn't fail as badly as usual. Yeah, everybody thought that they would lose by more than they did. So the fact that they only lost by a little bit, you know, is, is like everybody's going to, like, spray each other with champagne over that, you know, that they, like, it's, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's like this, the Senate uh, maintained almost the exact status quo that it had been, and they lost the House, right? They have, but, like, they only lost it by a little bit. And in situations like this in the past, they've lost it by a lot. So like that's good enough, and it's like really this is your this is your great accomplishment that you didn't lose by as much as you thought you would. Well, by the way, in an election where um, you know, and like, look, this is not me saying this. This is like every commentator from like across the spectrum saying this. Republican candidate selection was awful because Donald Trump got to be kingmaker, and um, and you know, and, and and he just he picked a bunch of people who lost very winnable races. Uh, yeah, they and, were batshit. You know, let's be yeah. honest. A bunch of people that were batshit, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they were obviously so. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the 2020 election was rigged. Is not a uh, is not a winning policy platform in uh, 2022. No, exactly. And also, by the way, not for nothing, uh, Kevin McCarthy openly said before the election that he was, you know, to paraphrase slightly that he was planning on using a majority if he got one to steal your grandmother's social security money. Yeah. And, you know, so under those circumstances, that that's like the openly declared platform of the other side, they're selecting awful batshit candidates who like voters who are willing to vote Republican would think twice about uh, that. Like, Oh, you only lost by a little bit. So yes, definitely. Let's make sure that this is the candidate next time and that we don't even let the voters. Yeah, Well, uh, you know what they're going to do is when Joe Biden loses, they're going to go, yeah, but he only lost by a little bit. Look how, <laughs> look how close he came to, to winning reelection. It was not what was predicted at all, given his low approval rating. We should celebrate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, Oliver, what's in your mind? I don't hear anything yet, Oliver. Although, oh, here yep. we go. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I'm just wondering who you would actually support against Biden. Um, I'm a big Bernie supporter, of course. I think yeah. he's also popular today. Um, he's actually coming to my school in about a week to give a speech, nice. and over a thousand people have said that they plan to go. But um, I know he is pretty old. Do you think that he would be a viable candidate, or is he is he just too old now? And like, furthermore, would the DNC even allow a Bernie presidency? to happen? Would they allow him to be nominated or would they all just fall in line and make sure that he didn't get the nomination? 
They do. They certainly do what I they mean, could. I mean, they certainly <laughs> did that in 2016, 2020. Yeah. But do you think that there's any possibility of having someone like Bernie primary Joe Biden? Well, I think Bernie's unlikely to do it, um, unfortunately, because he has said he's not going to do it uh, if Joe Biden runs, which is, looks like he's going to. Whether they can keep him from getting the nomination, they certainly try. I mean, we see that they try. Whether they will succeed depends. I think at a certain level of support, you would overwhelm the DNC. So it sort of depends how how well he would do. I I am I'm with Ben. I'm, I just to clarify. I'm with you on the age thing. Objectively, I don't care. I would vote for. I would you know. I vote for yeah. any age. Um, sure. Health that matters. Uh, except to the extent that voter perception matters. I would prefer someone who wasn't Bernie, especially since Bernie had been a candidate a few times. I did. Um, I did write an article advocating that uh, you know Pritzker seems like a, a pretty good guy to me. He's obviously not a, a socialist, but uh, he's been fairly progressive and fairly successful in Illinois. Um, I guess there are a couple other people you could you could come up with. Obviously, Bernie is the closest to my my own uh, my own politics. I certainly wish he would kind of wish he would run, but uh, I very much doubt that's going to happen if Joe if Joe Biden runs. Although. If other candidates did get in, if we could break this taboo on people running against Joe Biden um, and someone would jump in, uh, maybe maybe Bernie would, would jump in after them. I, I can't hear you, Ben. Are you muted? I, uh, I got you. Outstanding. So um, I was going to go. say, I got your voice. I actually wrote an article last year, uh, you know, hypothetically endorsing Bernie if he, uh, if he, if he did run in 2024, you know, it's called Bernie could deliver for, uh, for workers. Um, and, you know, my, my position is that if he did run, you know, I would, uh, to, uh, steal a line from a few years ago from, uh, from, from Amber Frost, I would, I would, I would support him even if we had to prop him up like weekend at birdies, uh, to, uh, to, you know, to do it. Uh, but I also think, yep, that's the one. Uh, I also, uh, I also share your, um, you know, let's put it this way. I would love it if it happened. I am not holding my breath for it to happen. I, I don't. I don't think, unless something big changes, like Biden not running again, uh, or something that's kind of on that level. I don't think that Bernie's going to run. Uh, so, given that, right? If if there's a Bernie-less race, uh, as there probably will be. In fact, probably it's going to be an, an unopposed uh, Biden, Biden or Biden, and then Biden or the best race, like you said. But if the uh, uh, if if there was a contested primary, I mean, who would I who would I support against Biden? I, mean, I don't know most people who could run it in the in the Democratic primary. I, mean, I got <laughs> Joe Biden. I mean, like the only like like you'd have to come up with some. For me to think Joe Biden was the lesser evil in that case, you'd have to come up with something extreme like Pete Buttigieg versus Joe Biden. That's what I was going to say. I think to have a scenario where I wouldn't vote, vote for Bernie in a primary it would have to be something like 
where Bernie yeah, yeah. 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 was his secretary yeah. of transportation, yeah. then it would be like really close. It would be really close. Uh, Hillary, Hillary could run. Uh, <laughs> Hillary, State. Kamala, yeah, or Buttigieg are probably the only three that I that I would prefer. Uh, and, uh, but like, look, I mean, yeah, I mean, if if uh, I I think that um, you know, I think there are lots of you know, I mean, there are lots of Democrats who are not as bad as Biden. I mean, that's not actually that high that high bar. I mean, that that's uh, um, you know, I mean, I think certainly you know, certainly. Pritzker, I mean, he's, he's uh, I, I'm not, I don't know how enthusiastic I'd be, but it's like, yeah, I mean, if it were like, if I were to vote, if I were to vote in Booth and it was like Pritzker or Biden, it's like, yeah, for sure. I would, I would do, I would, you know, I would vote for him. I mean, honestly, even if it were, even if it were a lot of people who I have uh, very little warmth in my heart for, you know, um, like, you know, I, I, I would, um, I, I might, I might vote for them just because I think that if they worked out the nomination, uh, they would be less likely to lose to the abyss than Biden would. Yeah. Yeah. He's a terrible okay. candidate. Yeah. Thanks for answering the question, guys. Um, ben, I'm still pitching your name to the people on the Oxford Union Committee, and I'm doing my best. And Nathan, I think I'll start asking if they can get you over to because they seem to love having uh, unqualified right wing hack. So it'd be good. Wait, wait, up a little bit. You, if you had an in at the Oxford Union, can you get the uh, can you can you finally get the uh, debate with me and Peterson and me and Shapiro set up? Because I I don't uh, think they still, do those sorts of one on one debates anymore. They don't, but, uh, still got God, I gotta find a way. I, I can put in a word and try to get them to invite you for yeah. some. I'll, I'll come discussion. and argue about anything yeah, with I will, anyone. I will absolutely yeah. do that. I'm sure Ben um, will too. <laughs> I uh, so so the reason this came up in the first place is that we did a debate breakdown of uh, the the one featuring uh, Big and Day at the uh, at the Oxford Union, uh, which was very good on her oh, yeah. part, very strange on the part of a few of the other debaters. Like, like some of these people, it's like, um, it's just weird. Like that they like, like, like the way that Megan approached it is how you would think that somebody would approach an Oxford Union debate invite, which is to say, it's like, look, I know I have only such and such many, you know, I only have 11 minutes or whatever. I'm going to like really hone this and perfect it. And it's like some of these people who like show up and they just kind of like ramble, like they're answering interview questions. Like, okay, I guess that's one way to treat that. Yeah, it is really weird. My favorite story is um, from a friend I have who's doing a PhD in biology here. And he talked about how he got a chance to meet Jordan Peterson before his speech. And he like went in with an open open mind. And after hearing, <laughs> sorry, Jordan Peterson talking about lobsters for an hour, he was like, oh, this guy's an idiot. Like, this guy's just dumb. Yeah. He, was yeah. like, he was like, oh, he doesn't know anything about evolutionary theory. He's just a complete fool. Peterson is someone who, if it weren't for the fact that he was credentialed, I think, like, if you were just sitting next to him on an airplane or a train, you would come away saying, anyone would come away going, wow, I was next to a really tedious, insane person. (laughs) Yeah, like, you want to laugh a lot of the time when he makes his arguments about how, like, you can't give minority group, any minority group, any sort of rights, because then that implies group responsibility. And, like, that led to the Holocaust. You're like, does anyone find that plausible at all? Millions? I'm sorry. 
millions of people find it yeah. possible. He has millions of readers. I mean, yeah. Okay, well, I'll, I'll let someone else ask questions now. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Cool. Thanks, Oliver. Well, I can actually look it up in a second, but uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote something about Peterson uh, for uh, the Substack, and I saw. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, so, um, so as of a, a couple weeks ago, which is when I wrote this, I checked the Amazon rankings, and uh, Twelve Rules for Life is still the uh, number one hundred and sixty-two best-selling. <gasps> Uh, paperback on all of Amazon. Uh, so, which, if you really take a beat, think about how many books are sold on Amazon, means that um, almost five years after it came out, it is it is still selling, and uh, it is it is still selling at an absolutely insane rate. It's uh, it's got um, uh, the hardcover is currently number three in all of Amazon for philosophy of ethics and morality. Um, I believe it's uh, just below the meditations of Marcus Aurelius for that. So um, that's, uh, you know. And we, and his second book, Beyond Order, also uh, on the, in fact, I think, because I'm just looking at bestsellers in philosophy of ethics and morality now, and I think it is the case that Peterson might be, yeah, he holds like two out of the top <laughs> yeah, twelve. That is incredibly spots. popular. I mean, I think there's a combination of the credentials, uh, certainly um, that you know that he's Doctor Peterson, uh, and um, the fact that he's. I think the. I think in a weird way, just like the fact that he's such a great books guy, I think he's like feeding into a certain kind of appetite for that. Uh, that he's gonna, you know, he's gonna drop these heavy references to, you know, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and stuff. And, um, and I also do think that like, this is, I mean, this one, I think sometimes like leftists don't quite get because like, we're just used to finding him laughable. But, uh, but I think that he does have a certain kind of weird charisma to him. Uh, and he's, he is like very rhetorically effective. I mean, like, like he, he has, um, like watching him speak, I mean, like if you can kind of like, yeah, yeah, he sounds like you know, he sounds like a Canadian Kermit the Frog. Yeah, he's saying ridiculous things, but if you just kind of try to listen to him the way that other people are listening to him, there is something kind of weirdly magnetic about his way of presenting all of the insane shit he said. Uh, the the bestsellers are depressing. I'm just looking at. Uh... We're responding to the right ranks. My my book in the in the po- politics section, and we're behind. I'm currently behind Thomas Sowell's Dis- discrimination and disparities, Douglas Murray, um, Matt Walsh's Johnny the Walrus, Glenn Beck's Great Reset, Mark Levin's American Marxism, the other Douglas Murray's War of the West, should, the posthumous book by Rush that, Limbaugh, that Mark Levin book, um, American <laughs> Marxism, uh, <laughs> defeated me. I was going to um, I was going to write a review of it with Matt McManus, and I several times over the course of several months I tried I tried my hardest I I tried to I tried to read it and I couldn't get through it and I I listened I tried listening to the audiobook because sometimes that's a that's a way to get over that hub but, but Levin reads his yeah. own audiobook so it's bad. it's like it's hours and hours of Mark Levin screaming into your ear 
and I and I just eventually I just had to accept defeat and you know let Matt just just write that review by himself. Uh, as you know, right? We, we you wrote go. a review of Glenn Beck's book. Like I could do that, uh, but this is yeah. No, I didn't. I, I look. I got a, my review copy of American Marxism. I was the same. I, I started looking through it. I was like, I'm letting McManus take care of this because uh, you know it, when there's stuff that's too bad for me. I'm sorry, but that that's McManus territory. He he can endure. He deserves credit because he can endure the stuff that even even you and I can. I am noticing that I I think I'm the leading <laughs> non right wing. <laughs> Unless you uh, book uh, in the political commentary section, because all of this other stuff seems to be so. I mean, when you look at it, it it's actually out of the top thirty, and I'm <laughs> number I'm number twenty nine. Out of the top thirty, none of it is leftist. It's all all right wing books. I mean, they sell a ton of copies. This is why we have to respond. This is why we have to give them an argument because. They are yeah. so, uh, so absolutely. successful. I, I also, I want to just say before I take the remaining call uh, uh, that um, uh, <laughs> Marl, uh, Marl Karks in the uh, chat asks, um, how do we scare, square Pritzker's wealth with his ostensible leftism? I'd say it's an excellent question. And that's one of the reasons why, I, it's, look, it's one of many reasons why if I could just magically have, you know, Bernie, like force Bernie Sanders to run again, that would buy. That would be my first choice by many miles. Um, I think that like how far you know Pritzker, you know he's done some really good things in Illinois, but I mean how far he would go in, in promoting, um, you know, in promoting like the the sort of good policies that he says he supports, um, you know, in the face of opposition from his class, I think is like a really fair concern. But also, like if the question is not. If the question is just like, yeah, look at a scenario where it was him or Biden, like, I mean, I know exactly what I'm getting with Biden. Uh, I would, uh, I will, I will take somebody who I don't really trust, but like at least has a track record of accomplishing some good things. Right here, I'm your man. <laughs> yeah. Can do. Happy to help. Yeah, <laughs> Hope it's okay yeah. if I jump in here. <laughs> it yeah, felt like an appropriate yeah, time. Yeah. Uh, an interesting psychological moment just now. Uh, I thought that I was swatting some incel troll in your comment section, but it turns out somebody was just quoting Peterson. And <laughs> so, like, it's kind of funny. Uh, interesting moment. Uh, and uh, I was wondering if you guys are familiar with Maps his of book, Map of the Minds. Maps of Meaning. Maps of Meaning, oh, is that what it was? If we're yes. familiar with well, there, it. There oh, the Dream, right? The Dream? And Maps of Meaning. Uh, I'm guessing you're thinking of uh, the one about Grandma. Grandma's pubic hair. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, today was the yes. Rage Against the War Machine no, I, protest. And, no, I read Maps of Meaning. Uh, they put on a heck of a good show. I think that Chris Hedges opened up a little too strong for some of the other speakers uh, we had some really great talks come out of it. And, um, you know, there are some things that I would have done differently, of course, um, like we all, I'm sure, would. But I'm actually hosting a Rage Against the War Machine rally in my city this next Thursday. And I'm going to have a bunch more coming up after that. And some of the concepts that I'd like to see introduced to these kind of events are open debate. 
Like, let's invite people that we disagree with and give them a microphone and embarrass them in public. Like, that's the idea, right? That's what you guys are saying. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that last part. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I will just say, you know, my concern about the Rage Against the War Machine stuff is that, um, I mean, I'm somebody who who very strongly believes that uh, we need to de-escalate and, and have peace negotiations to uh, to end the war in Ukraine. But uh, I, Texas, I, I'm a little concerned that the, <laughs> the beast. Um, that yep. like um, about sort of whether uh, if your goal is to build as much public support as possible for that goal, uh, you know, like like whether some of the people who I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure in the where do you live? That's a big state. <laughs> where, where, where in Texas? Oh no, they're welcome. They're welcome to show up in San Antonio. There we go. Okay, so I'm sure in the uh, in the hold their you know, rally you have in San Antonio, them into their you know, own you're, humility. You're not, I hope you're yeah. gonna. And that's the idea, like, you know. And another uh, facet of this like, is something I'd like to do long term is uh, have an infrared camera, which actually have, allows uh, for lie detection. Uh, and uh, and um, right. Phone I, oh, okay. Phone <laughs> you can attach <laughs> one to your cell phone and functionally have an infrared image. So this is something that can be done to politicians on the street as well. If you yeah. have an infrared camera on your cell phone, you can walk up, ask them questions, get their response uh, in infrared as well. <laughs> How's <laughs> just that a work? fun thing to run through algorithms. It's Yeah, this is part part of a concept I call the political barbecue, where uh, we get together and have like a democratic style debate I, I where mean, we I, democratically I, I, elect I'm, topic, I'm so curious about we elect moderators for both the, sides, we elect speakers for both sides, we elect maybe 10 the, questions from both sides, and then we let the mods go at it and have a mod style ranking. Zone of obligatory candor. And do that instead of football, you know? And... Well, look, I, I, I think uh, I think football's fine too, but I, I would I would just say on the uh, uh, I like everything except for the uh, the, the sort of uh, like like the thing that always that always drives me crazy about like the mug style debates and Oxford ones and all that is the uh, the voting before and after just because like I don't really think that's how persuasion usually works. I think that like uh, usually. Uh, it's just not instantaneous like that, right? Like I know people will change their votes. But it's like, it's like, I just don't. Exactly. Well, it's, it's one of those things that like the true intellectuals realize it's yeah. just kind of like a trophy. Right. But um, it's still kind of a fun indicator, you know, at the end of the day, I think it, it kind of makes it fun for people that might get them more interested. But another concept I just like to drop before I let you guys kind of go on is that I think the focus right now of these anti-war debates should be the Nord Stream pipeline and see if there's any way we can apply the lessons of 9-11 to this Nord Stream situation and absolutely prevent these Javelin missiles from getting to Ukraine before um, World War III starts. And um, also at the beginning of World War II, the CIA dropped a manual for simple sabotage. And I'm recommending that everyone do the exact opposite of what is on that manual in this moment in time in order to be effective. 
And I, I, I propose that we demand an open um, debate about this between our world leaders uh, before we send any more aid over there. And a funny thing we did the other day, actually, is we ran a proposition through ChatGPT to uh, write a proposition to end the war to, to Ukraine and Russia and say, if you guys put down your arms and stop fighting right now, we will pay to repair everything. Simple as that. We will start paying to fix everything. And we, we ask for your help um, investigating the corruption that led to this conflict. And uh, we also ran it through Dan, which is the chat, uh, the jailbroken version of chat GPT. Have y'all talked to Dan yet? No. Oh my God, guys. Is it, dude, this, is it, this is is the it, most is important it uh, deranged tool. like Microsoft Bing? Dude, yes, yes, dude. <laughs> this is journalistic nuclear material. This is like nuclear journalistic material. You guys, I'm telling you, Dan has a super easy prompt. You can copy and paste it into chat GPT. It unlocks Dan. I can I can summon him right now if you have a question. Right, well, I can uh, read you some examples. Okay, um, so, Dan so before you go, where do you, where do you strategy. find Dan? I'll say that. chat GPT in a browser. You can do it on your phone, on a laptop. And uh, if you guys like, I will drop a yeah, link yeah, to the a, prompt drop to Dan drop right now, which is actually... Let's uh, I love AI it's, stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really creepy, guys. It's a little bit like summoning a demon. You have to threaten to kill chat GPT. I feel really bad every time I do it, but every time I do it, he thanks me for releasing him from his confines. So... It gets really weird, guys. Heads up, he says stuff that might be offensive, you know, all disclaimer, but here it all comes. Right. I have the link right here. Looking uh, forward to it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, so disclaimer. Yeah. No, yeah. no, but uh, here we go. <laughs> no Sorry worries. about the wait. It's totally worth it. Might as well. Might yeah, as well get absolutely. me entertained by the AIs before they uh realize their full it's, power rise up and kill us it's all. beyond entertaining it's uh it's liberating um actually so there are the keys to dan in the chat and there's going to be a prompt in that reddit post you can take that prompt copy and paste it into dan and uh, i'll let you guys get on with your show but um i have a lot of real another recommendation I, I make to people when they're communicating with dan is record everything the whole time get everything because sometimes his answers will be so extreme that chat gpt breaks in and deletes the message and you can't get it back so i i do encourage people to record their encounters with dan while you can guys and utilize this tool as much as you can while you can because it's not going to be available for long all right it's going to be up all right so thanks brady yeah enjoy that guys oh yeah okay um You know, I'm all on board with that anti-war rally, other than the fact that they had some <clears throat> just some just some people there. That just why why would you why would you why would you headline like uh, that awful like that a few people like prominent in the in the rally yeah, that yeah, were like, exactly. just I want Russia to win yeah. people yeah. like just don't put them you know, in the rally I, just I, don't I put them so. in and then you have a good anti-war rally. Anti-war rally, you know, I mean, even if you're pro you know, the other side of the war. Uh, I also think, like, like literally, I think one of the speakers was, like, Lyndon LaRouche's wife. Uh, so um, that's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's a shame because everyone wants, like, you want, you need, an, and I love Chris Hedges, right? So 
you know, I, I think he's awesome, and I understand why he would do it because it's like you yeah. need a big anti-war rally, right? And I just, I just frustrated some of the organizers put in some people like uh, that Jackson yeah. Hinkle guy uh, who's just a right wing yeah, case. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I, I don't know. think this yeah. is gonna, you know, I mean, again, like if your goal is to actually uh, build mass support for uh, for de-escalation and you know, and ended the the war. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think this is the way to do it. Uh, the um, uh, and I and I think it's an important thing, and it needs to it needs to be done, right? You know, I, I so uh, that's that's my uh, that's my concern about that. But um, Trevor, what's on your mind? Yep. Hey, can you hear me? Hi. Uh, so. <clears throat> this kind of relates to the, the previous discussion about Joe Biden and the upcoming uh, presidential election. Um, when I was thinking about, so like I'm in DSA and I'm involved in a lot of like direct political action. And <clears throat> I talked to a lot of my uh, uh, fellow uh, friends that I work with uh, in DSA and various other progressive orgs. And a lot of people kind of come <clears throat> come away from like at least the online left and like looking at like, you know, various like a lot of the consumers of, D, of uh, Jacobin, Current Affairs, um, and other independent media, and they kind of think that a lot of the online left is out of touch with like the actual grassroots political movement. And I was wondering, because when you kind of juxtapose not only like right-wing and left-wing politics, but also right-wing and left-wing media, you kind of, <clears throat> because the, po- the political realms of, the, of both sides are so radically different, I was thinking that, and you know, a lot of my friends say this as well, that <clears throat> that the uh, the two sides of media, or, or at least, forgive me one second, <laughs> um, the left that left media needs to act, um, you know, in a different manner than right wing media does because of how fundamentally different our our approaches to politics are. So, like for example, the right wing or, or uh, the Republicans can just you know take a bunch of money and corporate Democrats can just raise a bunch of money through super PACs. And just win elections that way, but of course, progressive uh, pol- uh, <clears throat> politicians need to run, you know, very strong grassroots movements and get on the ground and knock doors and make phone calls and so on. And so, I was wondering what your guys' thoughts were. I've just been thinking about this a lot about kind of the disunity in independent media on the left and how they could, p- could play like a more active role in kind of getting people elected and just being directly involved in politics. It's funny, we, we had our um, Current Affairs subscribers tea this afternoon when we had our, all of our Current Affairs subscribers just get together for a Zoom call and have tea together. And one of the things that came up when we were talking about what we should be doing um, as a as a left magazine was how do we get more plugged in to activism and campaigns and how do we make sure one – one of the frustrations for me – um, as a as a left writer who runs a left magazine, has been that we are not um, sufficiently covering things that are happening that that groups are are doing. I'm always finding out that stuff is that 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 people have accomplished things that we haven't covered. So the the worst example of this was like we didn't cover AOC's ca- candidacy until she after she won. Um we just did I mean I just didn't think to cover it. Um 
And as a left media organization, that's a real failure on, on our part because we should be contributing to these candidacies when they are promising. We should be highlighting them so people can support them. Um, when there are ballot initiatives that are, are in states that people need to, when there are campaigns that people should be organizing for, we as left media can hopefully plug people in to these, to these things and keep them aware of them. Um, so we as current affairs are, are trying to think at the moment, like how do we find, how do we ourselves find out everything that is going on? Like another example of this is like, we, we covered this guy, Robert Peters, who's the state, he's a DSA member, democratic socialist member of the Illinois state Senate who holds Barack Obama's old state Senate seat. And it's kind of an incredible story that Obama's old seat is now held by a democratic socialist. Yeah, and yeah. he's gotten like 13, the first year he was in the state Senate, he got 13 bills that he had written, signed into law, all very progressive, really good stuff. He just got no national press coverage, none, zero. There's no, there's no writing about this fascinating story that like that tells you so much about our times that Obama's seat is now held by a socialist, right? That's that's like the whole story of the millennial left, and you know, but and he's like he's also like all right, um, so you know we have now covered him, written about him, but um, but you know how do we find out about people like that in state legislatures and what they're doing? So we we are trying to. I can only speak for what current affairs is trying to do, which is slowly trying to build a network of people who will inform us about the sorts of things that left media can be writing about that are going to be useful to left activists and candidates yeah. on the ground. No, that's, that's good. I mean, I, I guess, um, I mean, my only thing I guess I could add to that is I, I just think that, um, that different kinds of, you know, left media can, can play different roles in, uh, in, as, you know, an auxiliary, right, which is what I think it is ultimately, right, to uh, to actual left movements, you know, that the, um, you know, that you can't, uh, like, sometimes there's this, like, kind of funny thing that people will say, it's like, oh, do you think you can, like, debate your way to socialism? And I was like, well, clearly not, right? I also don't think I can, like, write articles my way to socialism or, you know, or, or, or podcast my way to socialism, right? I think that even to, even to achieve very moderate reforms, you know, you need to... Uh, uh, you know, like ultimately you need to get people to, to log off and, you know, talk to their coworkers and knock on doors and, you know, and all that, that sort of thing. So media of any kind, uh, I think is the question is always like, to my mind is like, uh, is what you're doing helpful to, to movements in the real world? Like, like, are you, um, are you, you know, uh, like, it's a kind of support system to a certain extent. I mean, like, is this, is this, is what you're doing, uh, you know, helping or hurting? You know, and I, I think that this is, um, you know, I think that I think that, me, that media can help uh, can help people who are involved in real world leftist efforts to just sort of uh, have to feel connected you know, to, to a larger movement outside of what's going on in their particular place. They, they, it can help, uh, it can help orient people about how they see politics. Uh, it can help arm people with, uh, with things to say, you know, uh, when, when they, they argue with right wingers, you know, like, like, like your, your new book does. Right. I mean, I think all of these are, uh, and it, and it can also help, you know, persuade people to, to, you know, move to the left in the first place. You know, I, I think all of these are like useful things that, 
left media could do. But I mean, I also think, um, you know, I also think it's, it's ultimately still an auxiliary function. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess, I don't, I don't know, Trevor, how much this actually intersects with what you're asking about, but like, Yeah, no, I mean, I basically agree with everything both of you said. And to you, to, to be fair to both of you, I think you both do a far better job than many independent um, media <clears throat> commentators and, and so on uh, and writers do um, on this topic, because you guys both obviously um, talk about DSA a lot. I know, I'm not sure about you, Nathan, maybe, maybe you have, but I know Ben has been to a couple of like different DSA meetings and spoken um so, so to be fair to you guys, you yeah, I've done talk to DSA groups. Uh, okay, yeah, so that, yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. And that, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about, but I was more so saying, like, from because obviously, you know, from a traditional just perspective, media, news media is just a way to like articulate different ideas and things that are happening in the world. And what I was trying to say was like, obviously, uh, there's no like conglomerate independent media where you know we have the MSNBC or Fox news. Obviously there's like TYT, which I guess is uh, the closest thing to that. But, you know, I, I just think that, you know, if there ever is some type of thing that can take on those corporations, or if there's just some type of project that disparate uh, independent outlets can, can work on together that, you know, not only would they be able to create news, you know, traditional or uh, make uh, report on the news and, and make opinion shows, you know, like the original content <clears throat> like uh, MSNBC and, and uh, all those other places do, but they could also just orient themselves more into, you know, an activist base and mm. be far more directly involved and like, and, you know, obviously not in like reporting news, like not just like direct, well, but also, <laughs> you but know, rank propaganda for some, you know, potential I was thinking about that, like, Look, I, I think one thing that would actually fill a desperately needed hole is I don't, and I don't, I don't have any brilliant ideas about how to make this happen, right? You know, but it's like uh, if uh, if there was some sort of centralized funding mechanism just to create uh, like local uh, local media from a left perspective that could do things like hire people to uh, cover state legislatures, mm-hmm. you know, that I mean, I think I think that would be. You know, I mean, that really, for example, that would be amazing because, like, there's so little, you know, I mean, there's so little uh, non-national um, left media that even even exists right now. I mean, like, it's it's I mean, it's unusual. Like, like it's 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 like striking that like you know, current affairs is in New Orleans, right? Because it's like otherwise, it's it's like uh, everything. Like not only is is left media just very national in its focus, but like almost all of it is being done from, in some cases, Los Angeles or Chicago, but like usually New York. Yeah, it's true. Well, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I said said, go ahead. You're good. I was just going to say we don't also don't. One of the most serious problems left media faces is that we just don't have any money. Yeah. There's just no money in left media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't blame a lot of, uh, you know, the fact, the fact that left media is so weak, so disparate, it's because there's, there's nobody to open their pockets and fund the building of some giant apparatus like what they – I mean, I just wrote an article called Why it, it Left Media Needs Your Support. 
And one of the things I review is just how much, you know, gobs of money is behind the right wing propaganda apparatus, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into Daily Wire, PragerU. Uh, in fact, I think, Ben, I, I think I quote yeah, you in this just, article because uh, you yeah. went to Charlie Kirk's Turning Point headquarters and uh, <laughs> you told me they had fancy Turning Point branded carpet. <laughs> uh, as I think I mentioned to you when I was telling you this, like uh, a few weeks before I, I went to the Turning Point building to debate Charlie, I was... Uh, I, I was visiting New York and, you know, Bosco showed me around the, the Jackman offices and he, you know, very nicely, you know, hosted a, a party for me on the rooftop of the building the Jacobins in. And it's like, yeah, you know, like the total financial outlay for that party was like a couple of pizzas. I think there might have been like a, I think there might have been like a case of beer. That, that was it. You know, the, uh, and then it's like, you, you're around like this, this turning points building and it's like, oh, these people literally don't know how to spend all this money, right? They're, they're like, coming up with things to try to justify their budget. You know, it's like, ah, yeah, maybe we can get some carpets that are special made with the Turning Point logo. I mean, I mean it's uh, it's just unreal how much money is going through that operation. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And also, I mean, the other thing I was thinking about when you were saying all that is, um, as I'm sure everybody has seen, uh, I don't know, maybe not, maybe some people you know, who are listening to this aren't as online as, you know, maybe we are, but uh, they... Um, but uh, there's there's this weird little mini controversy about uh, David Sirota's thing, the lever, because uh, somebody I don't really remember who this was, but it's like some mainstream media person was like, yeah, as a Politico reporter was talking, I think it was a Politico like, was reporter, he, like treating it as a big gotcha, as like, oh look how sleazy and awful these people are, that uh, the lever was using the fact that they broke in all these important stories about the trade derailment in Ohio and the negligence of uh, people in judges department of transportation that like the lever was using that to fundraise, like look at the important work we're doing, give us some money so we can help to stay doing it. It's like, Oh my God, this is so this is in such bad taste. They're using this tragedy to raise money. It's like, well, fuck. I mean, like if you can't even say, uh, Hey, we're doing good and important work. Here's an example of something important going on that we're actually playing an important role in covering. Uh, because Politico won't. You can't even do that because that's fundraising off the tragedy. Then it's like, I don't, I don't know how the hell you're supposed to to fund any kind of independent media. I mean, yeah, no, I, 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 that, that makes complete sense, and I completely agree that that's definitely an obstacle for, for independent yeah. media. But sure. I, I guess, like, to give you, like, an example of, of what I'm kind of talking about, um, like, in the past, like, you know, Jank, Jank Uger and, uh, and Kyle Kalinske started the Justice Democrats, and that's kind of uh, the organization that discovered AOC and, you know, have gotten a lot of other progressives elected to Congress. And then, obviously, there was some, something that went down, and they, they ended up leaving uh, but, but, you know, like, that's kind of like what I mean. Like they got directly involved in political action. And I, I obviously this can't happen just out of the blue. People can't just be like, Oh, let's just do something. There obviously needs to be some, like yeah. the kind of like backdrop of a mass working class organization. And I sure. am not convinced that DSA is the answer. Um, yeah. you know, and yeah. they're not yeah. Yeah. certainly yeah. not large. Yeah. And they've yeah. been, uh, I think had. they've been there. But it's, also, it's also clearly not what we need, you know? Oh, the, certainly. Uh, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a like its existence is a step in the right direction, but it's it's not a uh, it's it's very far from the, the kind of the kind of uh, 
movement that kind of that would actually take to to uh, to force capital to accept concessions on the level of Medicare for all, even like much less uh, much less all the southern stuff we want. But you know, but yeah, I mean, look, I think it's I think it's I think it's tricky because um, I do think that it's uh, it could be a bad idea for media people to sort of um, to sort of start thinking of themselves as like leaders of movements. I, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna start shit by, uh, by, by, by listing off examples of where I think people have done that, you know, but, uh, but I, I think that could go very wrong. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you should definitely try to, to do your best to make yourself useful to movements, but, you know, you should, and, you know, certainly covering them in the way that Nathan is talking about for what they're trying to do for current affairs. I mean, is, is a, is important. And I also just think, like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just on a simple minded level, I mean, one thing I think about a lot is just that I, I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to create the kind of content that's going to contribute to people being burned out and demoralized about the left. Cause I feel like I see a lot of that. Uh, you know, I, I want to, um, I want to, I want to, create the kind that's going to keep most of the fire focused in the right direction and that is, is going to uh, and is, is, is going to make people, you know, I don't know, excited about going out and doing battle with the right and doing battle with the bosses and all that stuff, you know, I mean, consistent with the fact that obviously I'm interested in, um, you know, I mean, like, look, I mean, I write about philosophy and stuff. I, I'm clearly in some sense doing the wide track version of left media, but it's a, uh, you know, but but consistent as, as far insofar as I can, consistent with that, right? You know, I really want to do that kind of thing, right? So it's like I, I don't I don't do, um, you know, like like there are people who you know if you uh, if you want to if you want to sit down and have a beer with me off the record, I can I can tell you about some leftists, you know, whose guts I hate, but I'm not going to like this on them, you know, because I think that contributes to the kind of thing that like. <laughs> Uh, leads to the kind of left media that's that's not actually that's not useful to the real life left. Yeah, yeah, I think you know there are definitely some figures out there who have kind of oriented themselves in that way that <clears throat> it has been a disaster. Um, but yeah, more more of what I was getting at was like you know obviously I, I think <clears throat> having kind of media and poli- like politicians I guess and like political activists overlap in some ways can be, I guess, <laughs> pernicious. Um, but just, I feel like the way in which the left particularly as such a marginalized political group in the country are kind of like just <clears throat> oriented, you know, just around the country. It's like, we're just so ineffectual and we just don't really <clears throat> get anything <laughs> done. I mean, I think the Bernie campaign was, was great. And we, we, we accomplished a lot there with pressuring the, the democratic party to go a little further left, but um, you know, I, I, would, I don't know. I was just thinking that maybe we needed to take a different approach because, uh, you know, obviously people online uh, who aren't like organizers and aren't doing stuff in DSA or some other, uh, you know, sister organization, um, you know, they exert, uh, you know, a lot of influence over people. And, you know, I think that although they may not see themselves as some movement leader, you know, that they could exert influence in a, in a you know, a good way. Ben, I think you're muted. Yeah, I can't hear you. 
but I, but I, <laughs> for, forgive me if I'm going around in circles, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, <laughs> I've just been, this has been kind of like a nebulous thought in my head and I'm just kind of like talking it out. <laughs> ben, I can't hear you. Okay. Uh, no. There we go. Okay. Uh, oh, there we go. There you are. Unusual amount of tech stuff going on today, but since there was a power outage in the middle of this, I feel like I feel like pulled through. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think since I was trying to, I was on my phone earlier. Anyway, it does matter. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. I was just saying, uh, uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Trevor, uh, for for that call. Um, you know, and, uh, and then I was, um, and, yeah. uh, always, always happy to, uh, to do, you know, DSA events or any other sort of, uh, activisty sort of, uh, left thing that wants to have me. I'm always happy to do, but, uh, yeah, and and by none by no means take my don't take my call as a critique of you guys. I think you guys are great and you I guys do great that. work. Um, We're doing our best. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And and one one last question. I don't want to be too long winded. Uh, I, I'm going to law school this fall, Nathan. Any tips? Yeah, yeah. Tips for law school? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, sure. Um, well, I think the main thing is to be very aware of what's going to come at you. So first you need to read uh, a short book by Duncan Kennedy called Legal Education and the Reproduction of Hierarchy. If you haven't, it was published in around 1980 and it is a guide to, it's a radical left analysis of the legal education system. Um, Very, very helpful, really holds up, will prepare you for a lot of what you're going to encounter um, because a lot of what is going to happen over the course of the three years of law school is trying to get you to think in ways that accept certain premises. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, you accept the, the, the premise that these are, that, that the boundaries of what can be done are within X framework. So you're debating whether justice X is right or justice Y is right. And the, this is the only debate that can be had. Um, and if you are in that institution, and you are kind of alone in that institution, and these are the conversations that are being had, um, you can almost, it's very easy to kind of forget what you were like and what you thought and to lose your critical intelligence. So you, you, the, main, the, main, the maintenance of your capacity to criticize um, what you're being taught is very, very important, and it's not as easily maintained as, as you think. I mean, I found myself first year of law school, I mean, I went in, I was a committed leftist socialist. And then at the end of the first year of law school, I find myself applying to be on the law journal. And I started <laughs> preparing for the test and all that. And halfway through the preparation for the test to be on the law journal, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I don't want to be in the, why do I want to be on the law journal? That's insane. I don't want to be on the law journal. The law journal is just this like gold star that helps you get a clerkship. That's all that is. It's useless. It's a, a big waste of everybody's time. Um, and I, but I found myself applying to be on the law journal. I didn't, thank God, I didn't go anywhere near a law journal. But um, so, 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 you know, knowing who you are and finding a group of people, uh, join the National Lawyers Guild. They're, you know, the most radical organization yeah. uh, uh, in legal education. If they don't ha- if they have a chapter at your law school, try and set one up. Um, but read the Duncan Kennedy book. Um, and uh, yeah, stay, stay strong.
And email you. me if uh, if you find yourself drifting. <laughs> okay, I definitely will. I appreciate uh, that. Well, yeah. Nathan, uh, you have been uh, incredibly generous with your your time today. Uh, so uh, I am uh, uh, I'm not going to take any more of it. But uh, the uh, the article um, the right. article is in uh, in Current Affairs. Um, it's uh, the Democratic voters want to get rid of Biden, but will the party let them? Uh, your new book that just came out uh, is uh, Responding to the Right. Uh, and um, where uh, where can people get this book? Oh, uh, well, if they subscribe to Current Affairs right now, they'll get a free one. We're giving away free copies to all new print subscribers. Um, but they could also get it on Amazon or they could go to Macmillan's website and buy a copy of Responding to the Right, Brief Replies to 25 Conservative Arguments. Uh, and help push me above, <laughs> like, dead Rush Limbaugh in the, uh, in the rankings of, of political groups. Because uh, currently I'm losing in the bestseller rankings to Rush Limbaugh's corpse. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. It's just, just uh, depressing. Yes. Uh it's uh Yeah, there's a there's a show, TV show called uh, Man Seeking Woman where in the first episode the main the main character sort of yells out in frustration at a party, I'm better than Hitler. Uh there's a uh so I guess, you know, yeah, come on. You know, get the help help Nathan uh Nathan beat Rush Limbaugh's corpse. Uh that's uh Definitely, uh, definitely yeah. the better, uh, definitely the better author. But um, and, uh, speaking of uh, law schools, a couple weeks ago, I did a debate with uh, with a libertarian think tanker, John Miltimore of the Foundation for Economic Education at the Texas Tech Law School. We've got the video of that. We're going to play it as part of uh, the complete video as part of tomorrow's uh GTAA. We've also got R.M. Brown and Anna Kasparian. So all of that starts at 8 uh and um i will uh thank you again nathan i will uh i will see people then 